Chapter 2 sets us up this morning well, and that we see the work begins in chapter 3, and then opposition breaks out in chapter 4, and those will be the two major points of the message today, how we do work and how we respond to opposition. Before we get started, I think we need to begin with defining the work, defining the work. Eli Floor is... Uh, a teacher at Holmes High School, also an assistant football coach. I've worked with him for the past four and a half years. He is now the newly merited head coach for the baseball team. And one of his struggles that we see is figuring out the uniforms. They have about five different styles of uniforms all in the same box. Now, he has to get enough white uniforms and enough red uniforms to play a home game or an away game. And so we go down and count, and when we think we have a nice uniform, we turn around on the back, there's a big hole in the back of the uniform. And so he's going through, counting, marking it off, can't use this, can't use that, this one's good. How bad do stains need to be before you can't use that uniform anymore? He's going through all of this, trying to figure out how many uniforms does he need. Now, I asked him last night, what's the main goal for a baseball coach? What's his main goal, what's his main purpose? For being the baseball coach. You want to know what he said? He didn't bring up uniforms. He said he wants to create better men if they're on the baseball team. He didn't say wins. He didn't say better baseball players. He said better men. And I think that's a really good goal if you're a coach. That's the main purpose. Now, the reason why I bring that up, many times when it comes to the church, we have no idea how to define the work. God does. You know what our work is as believers? To make disciples to be his witnesses. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love others like we love ourselves. That's the work. And the reason why I bring that up is because there's a lot of other work going on with our buildings. If you noticed the windows over there, if you look in the back, they look pretty good. You got solid windows. There's no draft coming in when it's cold. You can see out more lights coming in. There's going to be new carpet down. Downstairs, we've got new flooring in the kids' room, new paint. Buildings need to be updated. Unfortunately, Holmes High School is learning this now. Our uh, air conditioning units and the windows at Holmes High School are now starting fires. And so we're trying to figure out, how do we do this? You've got to update stuff. But that's not the main mission of the church. We, don't, we want to be wise stewards with what God's blessed us with here and in Oakland Avenue. But make no mistake, the main work, the work that God is calling us to, is to make disciples of all nations. So I want us to be clear, that is the definition. And so I, I told Floor, Floor, can you imagine having beautiful uniforms but not knowing how to run the first base? Can you imagine having a baseball team out there and having no idea how to catch and throw a ball? He goes, yeah, that'd be a little bit embarrassing. Don't make side purposes the main purpose of the church. Amen? Amen. All right, so here we go. Let's set this up. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we see the work begins. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king has said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding 
So they began this good work. First off, we're going to see four things that's required when God begins a good work. The first one, the work requires grace-driven effort. The work requires grace-driven effort. In Nehemiah 2.20, we see, I answer them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. All right, so Nehemiah is telling the people, God's called us to this work, and this is a big work. This is more than the people could handle. And Nehemiah understands that, and he points them to focus on God, because God is the one that will give us success. But I want you to see this. That does not mean the people sit back and relax. God will give them success, and the people get to work. So he says, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. You see how God's grace fuels our effort. You see this again and again and again in the Bible. God will grant success. The people will rebuild. God saved Noah and his family. Did Noah chill out? No, he built a boat. And we keep reading. God separated the sea, and did the people say, oh, that's a relief? No, they had to walk through the sea. Or, what about Joshua? After Moses passes away, Joshua becomes the leader, and the first city they get to has a wall that you cannot get through. They cannot win this battle. And this is what we see. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword at his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? That's a good clarifying question. His response, Neither. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. I love that God doesn't pick sides. We get to be on his side. Isn't that amazing? Joshua, are you for us or for our enemies? He's like, nope, but I'm here now. Just follow me. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's, of army, of the Lord's army said, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in, no one came out. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Now, can you imagine you're Joshua, you're a new leader, and he points out, hey, you see how no one's coming in, no one's coming out? God says, yes, I gave you victory. I wonder if Joshua's like, well, uh, 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 hang on a second. We're still outside the gates. And you want to know what the amazing thing is? This commander of the Lord's army says, Joshua, this is what I want you to do. Go back, and with your whole army, this is the next seven days, all you got to do is this. Tell your army, once a day for six days, march around the city. Don't say a word, just march around the city, one time. And then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. Now, at about this time, I'm wondering if Joshua is thinking, man, you are crazy. He's the new leader. That's not a great military strategy. Walk around the city, walk around the city, walk around the city. Oh, but get this. On the seventh day, the seventh time, you walk around the city, shout. 
and the walls will fall down. Now, can you imagine Joshua going to the general and saying, all right, we got this new strategy. This is how we're going to take the city of Jericho. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of walking. If you got your Fitbits, turn them on. You'll get your steps in for the day. We're going to walk around the city. And then on Tuesday, we're, go we're going to walk around the city again. Uh, on Wednesday, yeah, that's the plan. But what about Friday? Uh, we're going to walk around the city. Oh, but get this. On day number seven, we're going to walk around the city seven times. I wonder if any of them said, man, I'm tired. My sandals are wearing out. I ain't got time for this. Oh, oh, oh. But then at the end of all that, just yell. Just yell, and these walls that nobody can get in and out of, they'll fall. Can you imagine Joshua relaying the message? Now, the angel said, hey, I'm giving you victory. But do you see how God's people still had to put in some spiritual sweat? They had to do the walking, and they did the shouting. Isn't that an amazing thing? And we see in the Bible they do exactly what God commanded them to do. They yelled, the walls fall, and they go in and take the city. That is an amazing thing. When the God's work begins, he gives the victory, and the people still work. How about David? David isn't this ninja-type warrior. God's blessed his hands, but who defeated Goliath? God did, through his servant David. But you know what? David knew he would defeat this giant. Because God was with him. And you want to know what he took to the battlefield? A sling and a stone. And David still had to throw that rock as God delivered the victory. Spiritual sweat. You see this in Nehemiah. You're building this wall, and this job is way too big for this remnant. They had been there 13 years, and they hadn't put the wall together yet. They were discouraged, and yet... Nehemiah says, we'll start working. And he points them to God. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your enemies. God has frustrated the enemy's plot. From that day, half the men did the work while the other half equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. You see again and again, God blesses the people work. God blesses the people respond. And so I want you to see this because sometimes in the church we think, oh, God's going to do it. We're fine. We don't have to do anything. The awesome privilege of God's people is he includes us in his work. Or, you can go to the New Testament. This is Paul in Acts 18, 9 through 11. It says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So he's in the city of Corinth. There's many people that belong to God that don't belong to God at that time. And he tells Paul, hey, there's many people in this city. Keep speaking. Keep talking to people. Talking to people about Jesus. And then I love how the verse ends. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. God has many in the city to be saved. Paul is working. We know our mission. Make disciples. Or we're in 2 Corinthians. We see in chapter 5, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Right? We implore you on behalf of God to be reconciled to him. That's our mission. And all of us have people in our lives that we can get to to share the gospel. We can do the work. And as God fills you with his spirit, you're called to speak. God is present with his people today. God empowers us today. The question is, where is the spiritual sweat?
The thing about cutting grass, and, and this was the nice part with, with that, you couldn't fake it, right? We pull up to a yard. I can't act like I'm weeding the grass. You see it. You know who's working and who's not. As a matter of fact, one guy wasn't working, and he got fired. Unfortunately, being a son, there was no way to be fired. I had to work. It was my job. There's no faking this. There's spiritual sweat. Well, football. We have some guys that think they're slick in the weight room. As a matter of fact, we have this picture in the weight room, and we're closing down, and there should only be one person. And the, the picture is hard to see. It's either Balin or Camden came in late. She made it to the box you have to jump on. Well, she's the only one in the room that's not sweating. When you get tight to break out after a good summer conditioning, summer weightlifting, everybody sweats, everybody stinks. And if you're not sweating, you stick out because you can't fake the work. So I don't know. <laughs> Bailey and Camden, they haven't been back. This may be the reason. But they're the only ones in the room not sweating. You see, you can't fake the work. And this is the awesome part. God empowers us to do the work but it requires spiritual sweat. So here's my question. Do you have some spiritual sweat? And this is, I want us to be careful because then we go back, well, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? The spiritual sweat I'm talking about is in making disciples. You're praying for people. You're encouraging others. You're telling people about Jesus. You're asking God to, how do, how do you want me to be used? And then you do what he's called you to do. And I will, be, I will tell you this. The people were amazed that they could complete the wall. The same is true today. People will be amazed at how God will use you if you're willing to lay down your wants, selfish desires, and follow his. He empowers you to do his work. And when that happens, awesome things happen. You see it again and again in Scripture. You see it again and again in church history. You will see it again and again today. All right? Next. Not only... Does it require spiritual sweat, grace-driven effort? But don't be surprised by those who don't lift a finger. Nehemiah 3.5 says this. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. They're not sweating. They're not picking up any of the rubble. They're not repairing any of the wall. This ain't for them. Never be surprised by people who refuse to do the work. I may, therefore, a stretch, a two-year stretch back in the day as a student pastor, may have set a record for people we moved. They thought student ministry was a great moving company. So every weekend, we were moving people. And I was always flabbergasted about who would show up and who wouldn't. Well, one of my best friends said he'd be there. And then the call came, hey, we're moving so-and-so. We're meeting at 9 up at church. Can you be there? Ah, oh, man. nine's a little too early. I can't be there. And one of the cares that we would then go out in front of our moving team would be we'd play basketball afterwards. We'd go to a gym. Mom was a principal at Erpenbeck. We'd go up there, play some hoops after moving. He said, but hey, let me know when you're finished, and I'll join you for basketball. And I thought, man, I'm going to hurt this guy. Calls after the work. But you want to know what I learned? Never be surprised by those who don't lift a finger. Served at a, a church, a small country church, and they followed the 80-20 rule. 
Now, we only had about 30 people in the church. We had more cows in our backyard than we had people in the pews on Sunday morning. And there was one lady in the work, in the, in the church, that did most of the work. The bulletins, the bulletin board, the sweeping, the cleaning, the Sunday school teaching. And it was amazing how so many people in the church would complain about the work they didn't do. Meanwhile, this lady is just serving and serving and serving. Most churches, that's the norm. 20% of people do 80% of the work. That's not true of this church. But never be surprised by those who don't lift a finger. Another church, a large church in Shepherdsville, Little Flock, they're going through four chairs of discipling, just looking at how Jesus made disciples. And I was talking to their pastor, Rodney Alexander, um, an awesome man of God, great pastor, uh, leading this church well. And he goes, you know, we offered these free resources, great resources. We did training. That we called and we equipped all the small group leaders. And he said, but there was still this one small group leader, right, middle-aged adult small group class that refused to jump on board. And he goes, I'm never surprised by people who refuse to get on board. Don't be surprised at who doesn't do the work. Don't let that slow you down from doing the work. So here you have some nobles who liked the way things were without the wall. But then, next, don't be surprised at who God calls to the work. I love this. You have goldsmiths repairing the wall. And it's not laden with gold. It's just brick, stones. Or, later on, Nehemiah 3, 8, the second part of the verse, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to them. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're doing perfume, it doesn't sound like you're laying brick. But you want to know what? They were obedient, and they knew they needed to get involved in the work. So they got to work. And then one of my favorite ones, and I've already, I've already shared this with my family, in Nehemiah 3, 12, Shalem, who, uh, son of Helalesh, ruler of half a district of Jerusalem repaired the next section with the help of his daughters how cool is that man I've got a workforce in my family I don't know how sturdy the wall would be but I've got some workers don't you love that just get to the wall and get to work it's amazing throughout history who God uses go back to moving day you want to know who i'm grateful for the people that show up the people who are willing to load the truck and unload the truck mark we just did uh evan right evan young guy he's not lifting couches but you want to know what he does do run up and down steps trip after trip after trip after trip cushions pictures glass it didn't matter he's going up coming back down getting something else out of the truck going up coming back down and you want to know what it is awesome who shows up when it's moving day? God always throughout history uses people no one would think of. David. David didn't even get invited by his dad, the person who knew him best, when Samuel was there to anoint the king. He said, hey, bring all of your sons. He didn't even get invited. Why? Because he was a shepherd. He was too young. He was out with the sheep. And that's exactly who God uses. This is something that many people do not understand. It doesn't matter about your talent. It doesn't matter about your ability. 
The only thing that matters is about your God. And God can empower you to do the work he's called you to. And usually he accomplishes more with those people assume the least of. We were doing a faith evangelism. Some of you guys know the evangelism strategy. It was on Tuesday nights. And partners in this group was one guy that was scared to death of people, but he knew he needed to share the gospel with others. And so he would go to this house, and, and I mean, he's shaking. He's terrified. He doesn't like to speak to other people in public, especially to strangers, and yet he's just sharing the gospel with people. And it was amazing, house after house, person after person, they hear the gospel, respond, put their faith in Christ. They show up, they be baptized, they join the church. And his partner was a guy that had the gift of gab. He had leadership ability. He sold vacuum cleaners for a living. He would talk people into buying $1,000 vacuum cleaners. And he said, I was amazed. I go in, think I'd have this under control, go through the outline, ask them if they want to respond, and not much. And then my partner would start, and they're responding. And he goes, it was humbling because I figured out I better not rely on my own ability, but on God's ability. You see, this is the awesome part when it comes to God. Anybody can be used. And there's no limit to what God can do in and through you. So get on the wall. Never be surprised by who God uses. That's also why um, our, our football team on Wednesday nights went through Gideon. Gideon was hiding. He was scared to death. And God, calls, God calls, comes to him and calls him, you mighty warrior. Because God saw who he would be in God and not what he was. One thing that we can do is pray for God to give us eyes for people the way God sees them. And sometimes we can see it in others before they even know it about themselves. And it's a good way we can encourage somebody. Who knows how God might use you in his work. And then finally, there's a spot on the wall for you. There's a spot on the wall for you. Uh, there's a map with this wall. It's huge. It's huge. You have the, we'll go through it, Sheep Gate, Fish Gate, Old Gate, Valley Gate, the Dung Gate. And I'm reading chapter 3, and you want to know what? No one complains even though they're working on the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate is exactly what it sounds like. You take garbage to this gate and throw it outside the city. And yet there's somebody there repairing the wall not complain because they know a weak spot in the wall is a weak spot in the city and that's exactly where the enemy will attack and so they're working and repairing putting on the gates there's the fountain gate the horse gate to the inspection gate all the way back to the sheep gate you wonder what you see in nehemiah chapter 3 22 times in nehemiah we read next to him next to them it was a community effort wouldn't that be awesome if someone would say that of Redemption Church at Ashland Avenue? Dan Gill and his family were working here, and next to him, Quincy Hewling was working, and next to him were the Browns and their family, and his girls were on the wall working, and next to them was Amante Crosby, and next to them were the hackers, and next to them were the fights, and the list just keeps going on and on and on. You get all the way down, Roberta Ward, and then back to the beginning, boom. And everybody was working on the wall. 
You see, that's what you see in Nehemiah 3. God is on the move. He stirs the people's hearts to work, and they all get to work because there's a spot on the wall for you. There's a person in your life that is desperately in need of Jesus, and you're the only person that can get the gospel to them. God's placed you strategically in their lives. And it might be a family member. It might be a neighbor. It might be a co-worker. It might be a student. But you've got to get to work. And the awesome part is there's a spot in the work for you. So we see in Nehemiah chapter 3, the work begins. And I'll leave you with, with this illustration from the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read, But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now this is the important part, because a lot of times when we see the work of the church, we're like, well, that's already taken care of, that's already taken care of, we don't need to do that. No, no, no. There are lives that are ruined and in desperate need of Jesus, and there's work for us to do. And as a family, we're called together. And as a body, we need each other. You want to know what happens in the church? You, you, you start to look like people are expendable. And so someone won't be here today, and we might not notice. Someone won't be here for a couple weeks, a month, and, and nobody knows. And at the end of the day, did, did it really matter? We start to treat people like they're expendable. And then what happens in the church is we start fighting with each other like we're enemies of each other. We get mad over preferences. We get mad over secondary issues and we love to fight. That's what a lot of times churches are known for. As a matter of fact, you probably know of a church split over a fight that probably wasn't super significant. Now, there are some things worth fighting for, but it'll never be the color of a carpet. It'll never be certain styles and preferences. But can you imagine if I get up here one Sunday and my hands just are mad at my knees? My knees wanted to go somewhere. My hands wanted to do something else, and a fight breaks out. And I start punching my knees, and my knees start kneeing my hand. It would look goofy, look a little strange, be a little painful, super embarrassing. But you know what? It's just as silly when members of body of believers start fighting each other. It's almost as if a knee says, I don't need you hand, and a hand says, I don't need you knee. There's a spot on the wall for all of us. And we are in desperate need of all of us working together. That's what it means when you see in Nehemiah chapter 3, the work begins. But it doesn't take long. Guess what happens in chapter 4? Opposition breaks out. Opposition breaks out. So let's see it. Nehemiah 2, 19 and 20, it explains what happens there. So we read in verse 19 and 20, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official of Geshem, the Arab, hear about it. So the, the word begins, they hear about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? 
I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to this historic right to this city. So let's see the opposition. Scroll on down, chapter 4. Number one, when opposition breaks out, keep your eyes on God. When opposition breaks out, keep your eyes on God. We read this. When Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. This threatened his power. He was getting his way. A weak Jerusalem means he can rule and threaten and bully people into whatever he wanted. So he was mad. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what, they are, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down the wall of stones. The nations are gathering against God's people saying, look at how weak and feeble these people are. And then I love this. Nehemiah. Does he say anything to them? Nope. Guess where he goes? Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. You see, Nehemiah knows exactly who to turn to. He doesn't get distracted by those who are taunting. He keeps his eyes on God. Then you keep reading, and Nehemiah 4.6, keep working. Nehemiah 4.6 says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. You got people talking trash. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to keep my eyes on God. I'm going to keep working. So much so, the wall is starting to grow. You see, this is the pattern throughout Scripture. Goliath, he ridiculed the people of God day after day after day. And what happened to God's army? They were scared. Why? Were their eyes on God? No. They were on this champion. And they were right. Nobody could beat them. Think about this. A fight to the death, a guy that's never lost. One-on-one -on -one battle. The Philistines knew they would win. You weren't going to touch him. But David comes up. Who are his eyes on? Eyes are on his God. He knew God had the power to defeat any enemy. And so he ran to the battle lines. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the image King Nebuchadnezzar put up. You see, their eyes could have been on the consequence, be thrown into a furnace. But instead, they kept their eyes on God and kept working kept praying or Daniel later on chapter 6 hey don't pray to anybody but the king Daniel could have saw that and the threat you'll be thrown to a lion's den which would deter a lot of people from praying Daniel kept on doing what Daniel kept on doing and prayed thrown to the lion's den God spares his life you see opposition isn't new to the people of God you read this of the apostles Acts chapter 5, 27 to 29. Check this out. How would this be if this was you and me? The apostles were brought in, made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. This is already after they had been sentenced to prison. They'd already been arrested, placed in jail. It says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. 
He said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man. You see how the apostles kept their eyes on God and not the laws that the Sanhedrin were placing on them? Later on in that chapter, we read this. His speech persuaded them. They, the Sanhedrin had to be talked out of putting these guys to death for telling people about Jesus. So they wouldn't put him to death, but check out what they did. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, I don't know if you got spankings growing up, but this is a lot worse than a spanking. A flogging is close to a death sentence. This is painful. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Right? They understood more pain was coming if you kept talking about Jesus. Now, this would be a deterrent for some people, but not the apostles. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, in the temple course and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. How awesome is that? They kept their eyes on God and they kept working. James Hamilton puts it this way. Are there things in your life you fear? Is the opposition overwhelming? Take action. Are there doubts lurking in your mind about your ability to do what God has called you to? Take your eyes off of your inability and fix them on the one to whom nothing is impossible. Trust God and his ability and guard the wall. Keep your eyes on God and keep working. I've used this before, but I think this is a powerful illustration of what happens in the church. Summer League gang, Santez, I think you and Amante may have been there. We're playing Calvary Christian at Holy Cross, which is right down the road. There's 10 people total in the stands. Four of them are high school boys from Calvary Christian. And they're sitting down in the front row, not necessarily encouraging our guys for Holmes High School. They would be sarcastic when we miss a shot. Hey, nice shot. Brick. So we're in this game. We're playing. And one of our guys had had enough. He was going to say something back. So Calvary Christian just scores. These guys are standing up, being obnoxious, talking trash. Our guard looks at them and says, they won't score another basket. But as he's explaining how they're not going to score a basket, the guy throwing the ball inbounds throws it to him. He doesn't see the ball coming. His eyes are on the taunters. It bounces off of his head. It was the first time all game we had made a good pass, a catchable pass. Bounces off of his head and goes into the student section. And you talk about encouraging. These guys just start dying, laughing, pointing back at him, meltdown city. Why? Because our eyes went to the opposition. Couldn't focus on the game. Listen, Satan will seek to distract you. The opposition wants you busy about everything except for what God is calling us to. Keep your eyes on God and let's keep working. That's how Nehemiah responded. That's how the wall got to half of its height. But then we keep reading in Nehemiah. Not only do they keep their eyes on God and keep working, they also keep together. In verse 14 of chapter 4, it says, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your, and your homes. Each person in front of their families, remaining focused, striving together. 
Nehemiah 4.16, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. You want to know how much confidence that would give me? Here I am working, but I know there's an enemy lurking out there, but I got my boy and he has my back. And we keep reading. Verse 20 and 21. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continue the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. From sun up to sundown, I've got your back. You want to see something powerful happen in our church? Be a people who work together, who stay together, who has each other's backs. It is an amazing thing, the confidence that you can give a student at Holmes High School when they know they have people here praying for them throughout the day. Have each other's backs. Buster Douglas, way back in the day, fought Mike Tyson. This was when Mike Tyson was unbeatable. Nobody could touch him. He would touch people's chins and they would fall down. Well, Buster Douglas had a mom that was the biggest cheerleader in his life. She worked in a beauty salon, and she was telling everybody how Buster Douglas was going to be the heavyweight champion. Buster Douglas even said, Mom, you got to chill out. This is Mike Tyson. Might not go well. Buster Douglas didn't even have confidence in himself. And yet his mom kept saying, you're going to be the heavyweight champion. You're going to be the heavyweight champion. Well, just before the heavyweight bout, his mom had a stroke and passed away. You want to know what happened? He decided to continue to go on with the fight. But the eighth round came. He had survived the early barrage from Mike Tyson, but in the eighth round, Mike Tyson caught him with a punch that would put most people out. And the ref is counting, ref is counting, ref is counting, and Buster Douglas barely gets up, answers the count, and then the bell rings. And he goes back to his corner. Now, everybody in the arena and everybody watching on TV knew how the ninth round was going to go. When Mike Tyson knocked somebody down, if they got up, they'd be knocked out in the next second. But you know what? Buster Douglas survived the ninth round. And then in the tenth round, he knocked out Mike Tyson and became the heavyweight champ. And he was asked, hey, how'd you get up? And he goes, my mom always told me I'd be the heavyweight champion. You see, it's amazing the motivation that comes from a loved one who has your back. You know, it's easy to fight for my family. I'll be brave for my girls. Will we do the same for a church member? You see, that's how the Bible describes us as a family. And listen, we have all different backgrounds in the room. Different ages, different ethnicities. But you want to know what brings us together? Jesus. And in Jesus, we're brothers and sisters. And can you imagine the power for us to serve and work and to change the city if we knew we had each other's back? And then the, the final thing is keep alert. You see this in verse 22 and 23 of Nehemiah 4. At that time, I said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. That's a long time. Always on duty, always alert. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his own weapon, even when we went to water, even when we were washing, we were ready. I would love that to be true of our church. To be alert, to look out, 
if sins encroaching in one of our lives were quick to speak. Nehemiah 4.20 said, Sound the trumpet. We need to do that for one another. When we see a member start to stray, we need to sound the trumpet. We need to rally to that person. We need to have each other's back. We need to encourage one another well. We need to love each other deeply. And we need to get to work. So I say this, you're like, well, Brown, we don't have a, a wall to build. And you might be like, uh, what was happening in Nehemiah chapter 4? It says that their effort and their strength was beginning to fail. Right? And if you keep this sun up to sun down mentality, maybe your strength is weak. And you want to know what Nehemiah did? He said, hey, remember our God, how great and awesome he is. He reminds them that God's with them and empowering them. And then the people serve one another. Maybe your strength's weak right now. Maybe you have no idea where to work. God does. And God will empower our hands. We'll close with this. We don't have a wall to build. Right? There's no brick that we need to place on top of brick. But God's still building. It's a spiritual house with living stones. And we read in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, it says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then we see in verse 9 and 10, But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the problem. You don't see the rubble, or maybe you do. I see the rubble. I see lives that are shattered by sin, destroyed by Satan, and yet God has an answer for that. You see the reputation our city has. The wall is ruined. It's burnt up. And yet God has an answer for that. And He's building a spiritual house with living stones. And as people hear the gospel, they respond. And it's brick upon brick upon brick. The city is calling. There's a work to be done. Will we work? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for being with your people. Father, I pray that you help us understand the work that you're calling us to. I pray that we see the millions of people that are in desperate need of you. And so, Lord, at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our church, and in our city, and pray that we're faithful to the work you've called us to. Lord, I pray that you move now in the hearts of your people. I pray that you show them. I pray that you give them eyes to see what you're calling each one to. I thank you for gifting your church to do the work, for empowering the church for the work you've called us to. I pray for unity in our body. I pray for boldness as we go. I pray that you change the city one person at a time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.